It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In late July, we had a very special gathering of Ellerslie alumni here in Windsor, Colorado. The week that they were here was filled with pithy and poignant reminders about the Christian life. You know, that version that is all in, fully given and abandoned to God. Hey, this is Eric. I have to admit, it was really, really special seeing friendly, familiar faces on our campus again. Boy, did I miss it. This week spent with the students was truly magnificent and precious. And since I'm traveling with the family over these next two weeks and won't be able to be present and live in the chapel for our Daily Thunder broadcast during that time, I'm going to take a short hiatus for my World War II series, which I will pick up upon my return. And I'd like to share recordings of five of the messages that I delivered during this powerful week with the alumni. I hope that you'll be encouraged by these living truths just like I was. If you have a desire to be discipled this year, please go to ellersley.com forward slash daily and look at the training options that are still available in 2020. And please don't let the finances stand in the way of you applying. We have scholarships. So follow what the Holy Spirit may be nudging you to do and trust that he will make a way. And now, without further ado, a bit of thunder. I don't know what it was four years ago or so uh, in the local church here where God was moving in a profound way. I remember I gave a message called the stigma and uh, of talking about being willing to bear the marks of Christ. And, you know, there's the mark of the beast, which most of us get the EBGBs about when we hear the word, but very few of us ever consider the fact that, well, you're choosing a mark one way or the other. And if you don't have a mark, you're going to take the mark of the world. But we as Christians are marked. <laughs> We're marked with the mark of Christ, the stigma of Christ. And as a result, we share his stigma is the Greek word. It's, it's like it's a brand or a mark, but with it, the word stigma to us means it's a very negative connotation because it brings the, the shame with it. And so whatever that mark is, which you see Peter in, you know, when Jesus is being tried and he's being, and then Peter is asked if he's with this one, uh, this uh, prophet from Nazareth. Is he with him? No, I don't know him. You see that he didn't want to bear the stigma. He didn't want to carry the shame of that man. And so we have the same propensity as Peter did, unless something transacts in our life. We are very vulnerable to cowardice right now which is why God has supplied us with the solution. We must know what that is. And that's what this message is basically about, is to bring our attentions upward, to turn us from staring at the world and our own weakness, to turn us up to see God's power and God's commission. So the gospel challenge, buying into the great commission. So my afternoon with Ray Comfort if you hang around Ellerslie, you'll hear me talk about Ray Comfort. And uh, I've had a couple opportunities to spend lengthier times with him. And I have a very high regard uh, for him. Uh, I came out uh, when I was, this is quite a few years ago. And he had invited me up for, for lunch. And so we had, we were in California on a uh, family vacation. So I went up alone uh to, to meet with him. And 
there were quite a few things that were both humorous and deeply moving uh, to me. First of all, he's one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, I came up to the back entrance to the Living Waters headquarters, and there was like a nickel and a, and a penny that were cemented in. So just so, and I think he has a camera on it, just so he can see who's desperate enough to lean down and grab it, right? Then over there, you have one of those baseballs that's through the window, you know, but it's like a fake thing. So it's just cracked. Then you walk in and there's this huge, like Yeti, just uh, big thing. I don't think it's there anymore. That wasn't there anymore uh, when we went, right? Uh, it's in the closet. And uh, he has this whole room filled with pictures, but so many of them, the more you study them, you start laughing because they all, they have like his sense of humor. Like there was this one picture I, I, I found of the Duggar family. And uh, so this is huge, which has a huge family, right? And, uh, but each of the faces was replaced with his face. <laughs> so it's like this really, so all the, you know, the girls with long hair have this Ray Comfort face. Uh, and, you know, that's just classic Ray. And so I came into his office and he's like, I need you to read this. And so I'm like, okay. Uh, and he goes, you need to get pretty close to read it. And it's like really small up on the wall. Meanwhile, he's over on the side of his room letting down a pulley of a fake spider. Uh, right? <laughs> so, so I came out. It didn't work on me, which was really, I'm glad I, I didn't, it didn't work on me. But uh, so I came out and one of his associates says, did you do the spider thing? <laughs> so... I go to, to lunch with Ray and with his uh, son-in-law, Easy, Easy Wayne. And uh, uh, I remember as he's come, walking out of the office, he grabs you know, some of his stuff. He has stuff that he just takes with him everywhere. And of course, he's Ray Comfort, so he's the one that prints the stuff. So he just has stacks of his stuff around. And so he, we're, we're, we drive to a local restaurant just down the, the street and we get out. And we're in the parking lot on the way from the car to the restaurant. Now, for most of us, we have zones in our life where that's a gospel sharing zone. And those are very limited in our life. We don't have many of those zones which are like in gospel sharing mode. For Ray Comfort, every zone is a gospel sharing mode. And so as a result, it was shocking to me and very telling to me of how proactively he sought after souls. So as we're walking to the restaurant, there's someone over there, you know, a good 25 feet away. Okay, that's out of the zone. Okay, so even if I was in the zone, that's not very close, right? So, and we're walking this way, that person's walking this way. Ray just sort of trails off and goes over there and hands them something, one of his thing, you know, his stuff, out of his stuff. And, you know, says a couple words to them and comes back and joins us as if nothing happened. He just veered out of our conversation. We were in the middle of a conversation. He just left it, right? And, you know, for most of us, we're like, hey, if I'm in a conversation, I'm going to show respect to the conversation. I'm not going to veer off and just give away my stuff over here. But he's sharing Jesus with that person, even if it's just a touch, even if it's just a moment. He believes that everyone in every moment could be susceptible and ready for the gospel. And so as a result, he doesn't want to miss those moments if he happens to be the one encountering them. So then we walk into the restaurant, and restaurants are sort of an off-limits point, okay? When you go into a restaurant, it's not so that you can hear the gospel. It's so that you can be, have a private meal. Well, Ray violates all that. He doesn't seem to understand that rule. Uh, and so we are in there, and the first thing he does is he comes up to the lady, the, the hostess, and uh, he slips her one of his million-dollar bills. Uh, 
and says, can you get us a good seat? Uh, <laughs> and uh, then, you know, as we're standing there in the lobby, people walk in and he will come right up to them in a lobby of a restaurant. This is against the rules. I don't know who created the rules, but they're there. And you don't talk to people right here. And especially when Eric's with you and we're supposed to be having a conversation. I mean, we're supposed to be talking about things and you keep talking about Jesus with everyone around us. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? All the social requirements that we typically have, he was violating. And guess what? I was not offended. Why? Because I recognized that his priority system was more correct, even though it was incorrect with the world. It was more correct with the kingdom of heaven. And I'm wired to recognize that. And so there was a discomfort in me the entire time. I don't know how else to describe it, but I was uncomfortable that Ray was going to do something else. And I, it was out of control. I didn't have the ability to control Ray. He is like a, uh, he's just a gospel machine. And so we had a great conversation over lunch. And I remember uh, Easy and I were walking out uh, and then he said something like, where's Ray? It's one of those famous quotes. Where's Ray? I'm sure that that one statement has been, uh, has been asked so many times. And so we turn around and we're like, uh-oh. And I had this sort of thought, like, maybe I should just keep walking, right? I don't know where Ray is, but just keep walking, Eric. You don't want to be associated with what might be happening. So there was a big, you know, one of those extra long tables in the middle of the restaurant where they, either they put tables together, I don't know. But it was a big group of military uh, personnel. And so he had stopped by the table, interrupted their conversation. Okay, that is not... That's not good. Okay. They're in the middle of having a conversation. Excuse me. Excuse me. Can I ask you guys a question? This is in a restaurant. Okay. And, and then he goes on and there, of course, what are you supposed to say? They're like, oh, okay. And so he goes on to ask them a question. And I don't know if he distributed out some of his stuff or not. I don't remember all the details. I just remember being chagrined and embarrassed. And I, I the spirit of God touched that. It's like, Eric, why? Someone is being shared the gospel with. Someone is being introduced to the truth. And you're embarrassed. It's sort of like, I'm not with him. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm over here in, in the lobby. He's over there. Uh, talk. What is that? And that's a mature Christian. I mean, I love sharing the gospel. I love interacting with people. But even in those moments, we can find ourselves cowering. And so what intrigued me is that this man had something. It's almost like that cowering knob on him was just broken. And he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to do that. That, that he wasn't supposed to speak in those situations. And we could say it this way. What a gift. <laughs> what a gift to not have that device operative. And go, you know, that it sends you zaps when you're not supposed to speak, when it's culturally incorrect and you get the zap, right? John Atoxby, Oxtabi, who's also nicknamed Praying Johnny, I am witnessing daily the conversion of sinners. I seldom go out, but God gives me some fruit. So I just want you to pause and reflect upon a, 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 a statement like that. It's not that John lived in a time period where souls were more ripe. In fact, some of the most profound evangelistic stories that you could ever read in history actually were in harder territory than what we're in now. 
And yet you will see supernatural fruit born daily for men and women who are aggressively going after souls. And so what I want is I want a fresh reproof to our souls as we go through this. I don't want you to feel condemnation. I want you to feel conviction, which is hope. Conviction always offers hope, condemnation none. It will shove you over the cliff and say, see how bad you have done. That's not how God works. However, the Spirit of God will lift our chin and say, do you want to do this better? Because I want to help you. I have a design for your life and for your body, for this mouth, for these hands, these feet, these feet, and I want to animate your life so that you engage with the world around you and share my light. Don't hide it under a bushel. Let it shine like a city on a hill. Richard Baxter, if your heart's be not set on the end of your labors and you do not long to see the conversion and edification of your hearers and do not study and preach in hope, you are not likely to see much fruit of it. It is an ill sign of, false self-seeking, of a false self-seeking heart that can be content to be still doing and see no fruit of their labor. Many of us can labor in our realm of Christianity and see no fruit, no change lives around us, no conversion of sinners unto saints and be totally fine with it. What God wants to do is make us discontent with a holy discontent. It's like, that's not right. That's not right. Something should be changing because God lives inside of my body, right? If imagine that we had never heard that before that God lives inside of us. Okay. Imagine just erase that for a second. Okay. Move it off the table for a second. We'll bring it back. Cause that's the gospel, right? We don't want to lose it. However, let's imagine that you heard rumor that God had just moved inside of someone's body. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Clarify God almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth moved inside of someone. Wow. If I was around that person, I would just love to see what would happen in them. If God was inside of a person. I mean, what would that be like? What would they speak like? How would they interact with people? I mean, that would be fascinating. And guess what? You know that God has said, go, go into all the world and preach this gospel. So what do you think you would expect that body to do? I mean, wouldn't it be reasonable to think that it would actually do (laughs) what it's supposed to do? That's what I want to bring up. I just want to bring up what is obvious and just allow us to be freshly moved by it. And if you feel a lack to say, God, fix that. I need to be what you intend me to be. What are we doing here? Listen to Isaac Watts. Go into the public assembly with a design to strike. Could you imagine going into the public assembly with a design to strike? (laughs) This is a whole different mindset. In other words, whenever you go out, You're going out with a mindset. I am here to share Jesus. It's that simple. I'm not here to just buy groceries because that's what you think you're here to do. You just think you're running an errand. Well, yeah, you need to run the errand. But while you're running the errand, now you can fulfill your real task, which is to be available to the Holy Spirit to do exactly as he leads you to do. So go into the public assembly with a design to strike and persuade some souls there into repentance and salvation. 
Go to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to make the lame walk, to make the foolish wise, to raise those that are dead in trespasses and sins to a heavenly and divine life, and to bring guilty rebels to return to the love and obedience of their maker by Christ Jesus, the great reconciler, that they may be pardoned and saved. That was one long sentence. Go to diffuse the Savior of Christ and his gospel through a whole assembly and to allure souls to partake of his grace and glory. How about this one? John Wesley, this is, he, he had 12 rules for his preachers. So John Wesley, who's, you know, if you're on one side of the uh, doctrinal spectrum, can really irk you. But this is a fascinating statement. When he creates 12 rules for his preachers, listen to this. You have nothing to do but save souls. Talk about baking it down. Because you know when you're a pastor, you feel like you have a lot of duties. Okay, you have to, I mean, there's a lot of administrative things. There's a lot of study and preparation and sharing and preaching and teaching. And then John Wesley comes in and says, you have nothing to do but save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times, but to save as many souls as you can, to bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance and with all your power to build them up in that holiness without which they cannot see the Lord. It doesn't mean that the other dimensions of functionality aren't present. It's just that why are you doing it all? What are you doing it for? It's so that the church of Jesus Christ can be built into a soul-saving machine. We are here to change the world, not just make it through it. We are a living organism that is intended to reach out and alter the course of nations, alter the course of individual histories. That they would be saved and rescued. If we are doing anything short of that, you have to question what we are doing. The two. So as you guys know, I'm very passionate about the twos. The fact that there's always twos in everything. And it's interesting because when you study history, you're going to see this come out as well in the church. Because in the New Testament, we're going to see that flesh spirit. We're going to see that sheep and goats will be separated out at the end. And that... Though they both make a sound, that one is going to do something, the other is not going to do something, right? The sheep are going to function and do something. The goats are non-functional. You're going to see wheat and tares separated. What is the difference? They grow up looking very similar, but the wheat produces fruit. You have virgins. They both have lamps. But one is going to have something in it that is going to procure their entry into this grand feast. Whereas the others are going to be locked out. They can look similar. They can have similar titles, similar sounds to them. But Jesus is going to separate us and say, I never knew you. I did know you. All I can say is every single one of us yearns to be sheep, <laughs> wheat, Virgins with oil and ones that he knows. And I don't think there's any, you know, poll that we need to take in here to say, which one do you want to be? Every single one of us yearns to do this right. But we have a propensity, a heavy-weighted propensity to do it wrong. And the only way to not do it wrong is we need something from outside of us to invade our life and to take the helm. We must be controlled by something other than our own selfish motive. 
our own self-preservation. We must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the two. You're going to notice in Christian history that there will be, in a time of persecution, a church that goes silent and a church that confesses. So all throughout history, it's extremely interesting, guys. If you were to study uh, you know, when the Iron Curtain in Soviet Russia is going to come on and how it's going to affect the church, when it is illegal to, to basically have faith, if you want to say it that way. I mean, it's like highly uh, controlled and in different spots so controlled that it's suffocating and other spots where it's like, okay, well, we'll let you, you, you meet, but don't ever spread it, right? So it's it, different gradients, but it's really interesting because the church will go silent and then there's usually an underground church that will keep talking and they'll get into big trouble. You look at China right now and you have a legal church that will never spread the truth. They will never go- share the gospel, but they're legal. And then you have a house church movement that's in prison all the time. Why? Because they're sharing it. And so you have this unique uh, separation. This is the reason you see Eric sort of stirred up. Like I have a bee in my bonnet right now. Because I see the church under a certain duress that it's not familiar with right now. And what I see is a big sector of the church going silent. And whereas that could actually be good in the long run for us to discern between, uh, okay, this is the real church. Let's just call it what it is, guys. There has to be a function to us. Are we being proven to be tares where we refuse to bear any fruit? Are we goats? We see a need, but we do nothing about it. We cannot be that way. Don't you have oil in your lamp? This is our hour, O church of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, I want to walk through this distinction. So the hallmark of the twice born. You see, we all are a first or a second. You must be born again, which means when we pop out of our mother's womb, we are a first. We are in Adam. We must put off the old man. We must be born again by, through humility, repenting, believing. We enter into Christ and we are now twice born. We are a second. And the seconds, they are giving away that which has been given to them. They are confessors. Now, remember earlier in this week, I was talking about the flow through channel that we are, there's like a pipeline attached to us when we come to Christ. And it's pressurized and it's full of life. It's full of grace. It's full of the Holy Spirit. It's full of all that you need for life and godliness. And so it's full of forgiveness when we need to forgive. It's full of love when we need to love. It's full of kindness when we need to give kindness. It's full of boldness when we need boldness. Everything we need. However, if you receive and don't give, it actually closes the gate valve. So if we are not willing to give that which we're receiving, it actually stymies our forward movement in our development as Christians. And so imagine this, you receive the gospel, but don't give it. Do you understand how that begins to complicate the flow? And we wonder, why do I not have grace to share the gospel? Well, this person over here, like Coach Dave, I understand why he goes out and boldly shares the gospel. He has the disposition for it. He likes doing things like that. No, the difference is Coach Dave has chosen to obey when the Spirit says, speak now. And it's put him in a lot of awkward situations, and he's done it. Now he's acclimated, if that makes sense, to the point where it's normal for him. That's what we need to see happen in our life. We're like Ray Comfort 
we actually begin to acclimate to when we walk through a parking lot, we are looking. Have you ever noticed how easy it is? There could be seasons in your life where you were very alert to lost souls around you. And if you don't keep tending to that, you will grow dim in your ability to see it. And all you see is your individual needs. I need to go in and buy milk from the store. That's, that's what you see. Instead of that person needs Jesus. So Matthew 10, 32 through 33, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my father who is in heaven. Drawing a line in the sand. Okay, this subtitle will get us stirred up. Our cowardice and self-justification has ruled for long enough. You guys ready to draw the same line in the sand? It's like, that's enough. See, at a certain point, you have to just be fed up with it. You see, everything that you need is there. But you have to agree with the word of God. You have to agree. You can't just wait for God to pick you up, open your mouth, and start squawking through it. You have to actually enter into a position of readiness and willingness to say, yes, Lord. He never overrules our will. He asks for us to bend. Though we can pray, God, bend me. (laughs) Have you ever prayed this prayer? God, make me willing to be willing. It actually is a brilliant prayer. Because what it's saying is I'm willing for you to actually do the softening work and to ready me for action. We all need something in order to live this out. What is that? What is that something? Let's call it unction. Have you guys ever read Leonard Ravenhill's Why Revival Terries? I think it, I don't remember if this is how he says it, with all you're getting, get unction. Is that, does that sound familiar to you guys? And this is how he's going to start it out. It's like, you want to change the world? You want to get revival? With all you're getting, get unction. And so that is, that's what it's, that's what we're needing. That's the something that we're after. Now that's somewhat obscure for those of us that don't use that word. It's like, what is that? Unction is the key to Christian function. This sounds like some kind of, would it be unction, unction, what's your function? What, what is that? Is that Schoolhouse Rock? Is that what that's from? Okay. Uh, so I'm going to take that F and I'm going to sort of play with it with unction because you have unction. If you add an F to it, obviously it becomes function, which is what unction creates, right? So it's a cool word. And so you can understand the word just by seeing that F attached to it. Suddenly it's like, yeah, that's how we function. So you can hear all day long about the need to share with lost souls. But then you look in your own pockets and you're like, but I am not built for that. But I feel uncomfortable about that. I don't want to do that. You see, you're studying yourself. That's not the secret to change in the world is to study yourself and your own ability. You are unable to change the world. Just get that through your head. He has chosen you through which to change the world. But you have to allow his unction in. The unction of Christianity earns an F if it's missing the unction. So what do you have if you don't have the unction? You get an F. Isn't that good? You guys like my turn of phrase here? I mean, this is brilliant. But that F, failure, and fruitlessness is transformed into fabulous fruitfulness when the 
F fervently seeks after the unction and receives it. So when you accept the fact that apart from God, you're an F, right? (laughs) You're getting an F, you're a failure. However, if that F says, God, I need the unction, then it finds function. See, isn't this brilliant? I mean, you just learned a whole bunch about Christianity with my little uh, F and function thing here. Unction. So this is what it actually is. It's the anointing for a spiritual office, the ointment that furnishes the power to do the work of the ministry. Now, that's not typically how we're going to describe it, even in the Greek, but this is sort of the classic Christian understanding of it. So here's our word krio, which is a verb, and it means to anoint, to smear with the holy, holy ointment, to furnish with the power required for the office of Messiah. So this Messiah, this one who is going to come, as we know in the Greek, is Christos. So you see a familiarity here? It's the unctionized one, basically is what it is. This one who is going to come, he will be the Christ, which means he's the one with the unction. And it's a smearing. It's something that is going to come from heaven and be placed upon him and enable someone in a man's body to actually do God work. And so this Christ is going to be the smeared one, the unctionized one, the anointed one. And that's actually what Christ means. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the one with unction. Okay, that, that's the, the, the one with capital U, unction. He is the unctionized. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Do you remember Jesus? This is, he's going to reference Isaiah 61, which is talking about the Christ, the one that is anointed. He's going to open up the book and read from right here in his hometown. It's not going to go over so well because he's going to say, this is fulfilled in your midst, right? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He's saying, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one with unction. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, this is Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That's a statement of his Messiahship, is what it's saying there. So Christos is our word for the adjective. This is a descriptive of who Jesus is. It, to the Jew, that would be the long-awaited Messiah, the one foretold, the one fully furnished for the work, endued with the heavenly power. Now we know that is Jesus, but look at the second half of this description. The one fully furnished for the work. You know what the New Testament is going to clarify to us? Is that because Jesus is going to say to us, he says, it's better for you that I go to be with the Father. And if I could summarize it very simply, it could say, so that you would be fully furnished for your work. And so that you would be endued with heavenly power. You see, the anointed one has come, the unctionized one has come, and then he has gone to be with the Father so that he could give us his Function. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's extraordinary, in fact. Second Corinthians one twenty one. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God. So God is actually giving us this anointing, this unction. Christians, 
I mean, even though that came out as a slur, I know, when it was first given. But you know what that would mean? I mean, we're the little anointed ones. The smeared with life, the heavenly drenched, the spirit saturated, those who have been immersed in the anointed, the Christ, and have become the dwelling place of this anointing. So Psalm 133, 1 through 3. Now, just look at this maybe with a new lens on. This is intriguing based on the idea of the anointing. Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to, for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment, that unction, upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Aaron's the high priest. And so it's going to run down on the head. Who's the head? Jesus. That went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So guess who is his body? This, is, this anointing is going to come on the head. And since he is a king and a priest, it's a double anointing. And literally it'll be all, it's drenching his body. His body becomes anointed because the head is anointed. The desperate hour of the confessors. So let's go back in history. I'm going to say this screen says built to repeat history unless there is unction. So history is not very pleasant on this front. Okay, we have, what's the good of history if we're not going to learn from it? And what I'm going to say is during World War II, and right before World War II, in fact, you're going to see a breakdown of the church of Jesus Christ the world over that is going to turn a blind eye to evil. And as a result, you're going to see a movement and an encroachment of evil, which is going to lead to hundreds of millions of deaths. It's going to lead to death, if I could just summarize it. World War II is such a carnage, it's hard to even conceive. It's not that long ago. This wasn't that long ago, and yet what is happening in our modern day is paralleling exactly what was happening in the 30s, the 1930s. And so I say it's high time that we as the church wake up. Three in every 1,000. So there were 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany in 1933. Hitler is going to come into power in 1933. So there were 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany in 1933, and only three in every 1,000 were willing to stand up and say that what Hitler was doing to the Jews was wrong. Uh, now, most of us would say, if, if I were to take you off to the side and say, so how would you, right now, if I told you what Hitler was doing to the Jews, how would you respond? You'd say, oh, it's terrible. I, of course, would, would say that that's wrong. You see, there's 45 million Protestant Christians and three in every thousand. That's not three in a hundred. That's not 3%. This is like pathetic. This is so dismal that it's, it's shocking. It doesn't even, it's not even like a blip on the, on the radar screen. It's like, on, technically it looks like zero response. No one is willing to stand up against them. So also there were 7,000 impotent churches in 1933. And this is going to be in North America. It could have just been Canada. Oswald Smith would be up in Canada when he wrote this. But I want you to recognize this is the same time where you're going to see a complete docile passivity towards evil encroaching in Germany. You're also going to see the same thing happening in America. Now, if you know the landscape of American history and world history at this time, you're going to actually see that in the 30s, you have the growth of the Nazi regime. 
and you're going to have worldwide crisis with what we call here in America the Great Depression, okay, where our nation is going to feel like it's falling apart at the seams, which is going to turn us more and more inward. And so what you're seeing today is you're seeing a financial crisis. You're seeing uh, an encroachment of evil and lawlessness without a rebuttal. There is no pushback. In fact, anyone who dares push back on it is enemy number one right now. And so as a result, very odd time of history that we're in. Well, they were in an odd time too. So Oswald J. J. Smith, pastor, uh, from my boyhood, it has been my delight to read more or less of God's work along these lines, speaking of revival. But lately I've been led to lay all else aside and to literally devour everything I could lay hands on regarding revival work. And as I studied the lives of those whom God has signally used all down the centuries, especially the labors of the Puritans, the early Methodists, and others of later years, and saw how wonderfully they were owned of him, and how they worked for, expected, and got what they sought, I was compelled to admit that I saw nothing like it today, either in my own ministry or in the ministry of others. The average church does not aim at, let alone get, results. Men preach and never even dream of anything happening. Oh, how far away we have drifted. How powerless we have become. Listen to this. It is reported that there were 7,000 churches that did not win a single soul for Jesus Christ in an entire year. That means that 7,000 ministers preached the gospel for a whole year without reaching even one lost soul. Suppose that they preached, putting it at a low average, on 40 Sundays, not including extra meetings, and that would mean that these 7,000 ministers preached 560,000 sermons in a single year. Think of the work, the labor, the money expended in salaries, etc. to make this possible. And yet 560,000 sermons preached by 7,000 ministers in 7,000 churches of tens of thousands of hearers during a period of 12 months failed to bring a single soul to Christ. Now, my brethren, there is something radically wrong somewhere. There is either something the matter with these 7,000 ministers or else with their 560,000 sermons or with both. You see, this is the same time period where you're going to see a pacifism. You know who is leading the, the appeasement campaign for peace, peace at all costs, and just wanted to overlook what was going on with Hitler? The church. The church is the big leaders in Great Britain and in America that are like, hey, hey, we want peace. We don't want to go to war. Well, I don't want to go to war either. I mean, who wants to go to war? However, it sounded so noble and so correct to say we don't want war. Who wants war? However, Hitler is waging war. He just took uh, Austria. Does anyone care? Because Austria is now under Nazi rule and they're part of the United Nations and no one's protecting them. He just took the Sudetenland, guys. Is anyone going to do anything? We don't want war. He's going to take Czechoslovakia next. We know it. We see his eyes turning that way. What are we going to do about it? We don't want to do anything. We want peace in our time. So I don't want to just blame that on political leaders, the church, the church of Jesus Christ wanted peace, peace at all costs. When evil is encroaching, peace is not our option. We must stand for truth, though it will bring tremendous drama and inconvenience to our life. 57 million Christians in America today. Now, how I you know, get these numbers, did you count them, Eric? I, I'm sure I went to some source and f- someone's guessing that there's 57 million Christians in America today. Okay, that's almost hard for me to believe that there's that many 
Christians in America today. However, what we define as Christian has become very nominal. And so a lot of people would declare almost like a Christian heritage to be Christian. It's like, oh, well, my grandpa was Christian. So yeah, I'm Christian. It's almost like it's their ethnicity (laughs) as opposed to a belief system. And so whether or not this is an accurate number, it's a number to start with, right? And with every year that passes, what's interesting with this number is it's shrinking. You know that that's actually impossible for the church to shrink? Why? Because the very nature of the church is to multiply. Isn't it? I mean, if, if every one of us were to, to lead one person to the Lord, one, each year, we would double <laughs> instead of shrink. Mathematically, this is incomprehensible for the church, and yet this is exactly what's happening in our nation right now. And so as a result, what you see is a susceptibility to the very same thing that was happening in World War II. So with every year that passes, that number shrinks. If the church was actually confessing, that ought not to happen. If only three in every thousand. So let's imagine that three out of every thousand Christians out of this 57 million. So we have a pathetic number, right? It's hardly even a blip on the scales. If just three of this number were to rise up and begin confessing. And begin to live as confessing Christians, the world would be altered. So imagine this, 171,000 willing to confess. That's all. Out of 57 million, that would leave 171,000 that were saying, yes, Lord, I'm in. I'm in. Use me. Even though I see the vast majority of those around me in the church totally silent and doing nothing and sitting on their thumbs. Use me. If 171,000 were to join that brigade and they prayerfully prayerfully pursued one new believer every month, and discipled all those new believers to do the same. So imagine that we started a new precedent, a new root system, a new way of thinking. If you did that just with three in a thousand, in year one, we'd have two million new believers. It's actually 2,052,000. Year two, 24,624,000 new believers. Year three, 295,488,000 new believers. And in year four, 3.5 billion new believers. And then it just escalates. I mean, there's only seven point something billion people in the world. And so what you see is when the church activates, when it begins to do what it is called to do, everything flips on its head. Gospel month in China. So there's a statement that was around a few years ago. I don't know if it needs to be amended. I don't know where it's at now. I haven't looked into it. At the current rate of growth in the Chinese underground church, there will be more Christians in the illegal Chinese church in 10 years than there are people in the United States of America. And that was about four or five years ago, right? So in other words, the house church movement, which is illegal, is growing so vast and so dramatically that literally in a 10-year period, it was estimated that it would actually have more people in it than all the people of the United States. That's a massive movement. And yet it's illegal. I mean, these guys are punished at the highest levels for reproducing and for sharing the gospel, and they're doing it. For us, what's the penalty that we get for sharing? Public shame, awkwardness, and embarrassment. That's what we're risking, and yet we're silent. Let's take our cues from somewhere other than the the, the church here in America. I don't think we're getting the best pattern here, guys. 
So how do we access this unction? Since I know all of you are like, okay, all right, enough of this. Let's get going. Let's do something. Let's, let's stir up something here. I don't want to just sit on my duff. I don't want to be a part of a statistic like that. I don't want in the years to come for the, some guy to write something about the year 2020 and how pathetic the church was. And then your grandkids look back, uh, great granddad, weren't you living at that time? What did you do? Well, I sat on my thumbs like the statistic says. <laughs> in other words, that's not good. Leonard Ravenhill, unction cannot be learned, only earned by prayer. E.M. Bounds, prayer, much prayer is the price of preaching unction. Prayer, much prayer is the one sole condition of keeping this unction. Without unceasing prayer, the unction never comes to the preacher. Without perseverance in prayer, the unction, like the manna overlapped, breeds worms. Ian bounds again. This unction comes to the preacher not in the study, but in the closet. It is heaven's distillation in answer to prayer. It is the sweet exhalation of the Holy Spirit. It impregnates, suffuses, softens, percolates, cuts, and soothes. It carries the word like dynamite, like salt, like sugar. Makes the word a soother, an arranger, a revealer, a searcher. Makes the hearer a culprit or a saint. Make him we- makes him weep like a child and live like a giant. Opens his heart and his purse as gently yet as strongly as the spring opens the leaves. This unction is not the gift of genius. It is not found in the halls of learning. No eloquence can woo it. No industry can win it. No prelatical hands can confer it. It is the gift of God, the signet set to his own messengers. It is heaven's knighthood given to the chosen true and brave ones who have sought this anointed honor through many an hour of tearful wrestling prayer. The unctionized often spend hours in prayer daily. So to be effective in this, there is a need for real alteration at the life level. Many of us want the strength of heaven, but we don't want to follow the program that God prescribes. And so as a result, we will spend ourselves in energy or spend our energies in tasks that are more appealing to us than in the ones that God says, but this will get her done. And technically I say, let's just listen to what God has to say on it and then let's do it. And if God says it's prayer, I say, let's believe him and then let's go after it. And let's go after it as a bulldog around the ankle. Once you know that you have something and you have the one who alone can deliver it to you, bite in and don't let go. And when he tries to shake you off, you hold on. You're flopping around like I picture a cartoon bulldog just sort of flopping around. going, And that's exactly the way we need to be in prayer. We need something. Let's go after it. Charles Spurgeon, I wonder how long we might beat our brains before we could plainly put into words what is meant by preaching with unction. Yet he who preaches knows its presence, and he who hears soon, and he, he who hears soon detects its absence. Samaria in famine typifies a discourse without it. Jerusalem with her feasts of fat things full of marrow may represent a sermon enriched with it. Everyone knows what the freshness of the morning is when orient pearls abound on every blade of grass, but who can describe it, much less produce it of itself? Such is the mystery of spiritual anointing. We know, but we cannot tell others what it is. It is as easy as it is foolish to counterfeit it. Unction is a thing which you cannot manufacture, and its counterfeits are worse than worthless. Yet it is in itself priceless 
and beyond measure needful if you would edify believers and bring sinners to Christ. Listen to this in Psalm 133. This is using uh, Spurgeon's illustration of the dew on the morning uh, blade of grass. As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And so I have a little picture of dew. How do you produce that? How do you get that there? And yet every one of us knows when it's there and when it's not there. It's obvious. And the same is true in the spiritual life. We know when someone has this. We know when we have it. I can tell you when I've preached and I know when I have it and I know when I didn't. And it's a reproof because I know how to get it. (laughs) I mean, I do. I know exactly what produces that, but it's a labor. It's a form of work that is oftentimes extremely uncomfortable. And when you get busy, you don't have time for that sort of work, do you? You cannot afford to not have that dew of Hermon upon you. Ian Bounds again says, This divine unction is the feature which separates and distinguishes true gospel preaching from all other methods of presenting the truth, and which creates a wide spiritual chasm between the preacher who has it and the one who has it not. It backs and impregnates revealed truth with all the energy of God. Unction is simply putting God in his own word and on his own preachers. Isn't that a great statement? Unction is simply putting God in his own word. So when you speak the word, God is in it. And when you as a preacher preach it, God is in it. And when you go out and talk with a soul, it is not you trying to reason and logically win them. It is God winning them. Without God in the equation, good luck. We have a world that is hardened. The only way to break through that crust is with God. And you are the carrying vehicle. We need to prepare ourselves to be a carrying vehicle worthy of this task. Ian Bounds continues, By mighty and great prayerfulness, It is all potential and personal to the preacher. It inspires and clarifies his intellect, gives insight and grasp and projecting power. It gives to the preacher heart power, which is greater than head power. And tenderness, purity, force flow from the heart by it. Enlargement, freedom, fullness of thought, directness, and simplicity of utterance are the fruits of this unction. Richard Cecil says, All the minister's efforts will be vanity or worse than vanity if he have not unction. Unction must come down from heaven and spread a savor and feeling and relish over his ministry. And among the other means of qualifying himself for his office, the Bible must hold the first place. And the last also must be given to the word of God in prayer. Ian Bounds says, without this unction, there are no true spiritual results accomplished. I mean, all you need to do is look at a quote like that and say, okay, I'm not taking another step without unction. And that would be a wise statement. It doesn't make any sense to move forward if you don't know that God's pushing you forward. You need God going before you, with you, and behind you. Every ministry is started by prayer, and then the unction coming and leading and directing the construction. Every ministry is built by that unction. Every ministry is continued, fostered, and perseveres with that unction and reaches that final day with integrity due to unction. Without this Holy Spirit presence, without the Holy Spirit controlling and empowering empowering the work of the individual and the corporate body, what are we doing? 
I cannot come to any other conclusion but that this matters at the very top of our list. We know that we must carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. But we are fearful and cowardice at the core. So what are we supposed to do? Listen to our fear and cowardice and let that define our final statement on the matter? Oh, well, I guess we shouldn't share. And maybe there are just some out there that just have this natural boldness built in. And they feel more comfortable doing it, so I'll let them do it. Don't excuse yourself. Don't allow the self-justification in. Block it at the door right now. And say, Lord, my answer is yes. Don't even quibble about it. Don't even negotiate in your brain about it. Just say, yes, Lord. Okay, now, Lord, you need to do it. You need to begin to change this cowardice vessel into a fearless one. So that I am ready. That these lips are ready to speak precisely what you would speak. I don't know if any of you have ever been in the zone. Okay, I I just made up the term for the zone. But the zone. So you're like, well, Eric, what is the zone? Well, like I said, I just made up the term. But I know what I mean by it. There's a zone where you stop negotiating with the lunacy of your actions. You stop hesitating because if you did that, this could happen. You just move forward. And therefore, something will come out of your mouth that in a typical situation, if you were thinking and you weren't in the zone, you would have said, no way am I going to say that. But you actually move forward and begin to heed the Holy Spirit and to do exactly what he's asking you to do. And you are forsaking, like vigorously pushing away all of the reasoning points which would try and beg you to stop. And as a result, you're in the zone. You're saying, Spirit of God, I am your vessel. And if you want to speak that through me, my answer is yes. And what you see is that when you function there, God will do miracles. He will. Can't tell you how many times I have done ridiculous things where people have said, how did you know that? Why did you do that? You know, because I was praying this and then you did this. How did that happen? Well, that's because the Spirit of God knows what's going on inside of them. And when you're not in the zone and when you're in your own fog bank, you're going to say, no way am I going to do that. Because your own rationale on it is self-preserving. It's not for the sake of his glory and to win the lost. To win the lost, we're going to have to get a little crazy around the edges, guys. We're going to have to forsake natural human wisdom and go after the God variety of it. Which actually can lead you to a prison cell. But when you get in that prison cell, sing. You see, God will care for you. You need to trust him. Ian Bounds says, without this unction on the preacher, the gospel has no more power to propagate itself than any other system of truth. This is the seal of its divinity. Unction in the preacher puts God in the gospel. Without the unction, God is absent and the gospel is left to the low and unsatisfactory forces that the ingenuity, interest, or talents of men can devise to enforce it and project its doctrines. That's exactly how most of the church is functioning right now. It's functioning in that final sentence. The gospel is left to the low and unsatisfactory forces that the ingenuity, interest, and talents of men can devise to enforce and project its doctrines. Stony hearts await us out there. If we go forward without the unction, we will fail. Leonard Ravenhill says, When the hammer of logic and the fire of human zeal fail to open the stony heart, unction will succeed. John Prane Hyde, 
the praying missionary to India. So there's a pattern that I want to just uh, go over very briefly. I'm actually probably going to skip over this section. But John Prainhide is in possibly as difficult of a terrain as modern America is right now. There was a rejection of Christendom. There was a strong uh, hold of false religion at the time in India. And he goes over there as a missionary. And this man was a praying man, which is where he gets his nickname, John Praying Hyde. And he would pray and he would pray and he would pray, but he was also an evangelist. And he would go out every day and he had a deal with God. And you guys have it in your notes, so you can go through it. But he, he's going to actually feel like God wants him to enter into a, like a covenant agreement with him that if he will go out and speak, that God will give him one soul a day in India. That's 365 souls in a year in India. Okay, now just imagine the mathematical chances of that happening for you. Okay, if you're going to win one a day. So it's not that just in one day he gets 365 and then he spreads that out over the year. No, one a day at minimum. That's what he had faith for. And so he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. He'd go out and extraordinary stories, guys. And every day, even if it's late at night, he's like, oh, I know God's going to give me one. And sure enough, and he had, I don't remember what it was in the, in the first year, but it was even more than 365, right? That's, that's amazing. The next year, he feels like God is asking him to increase that to two. And sure enough, he goes after two souls a day and he gets them. I mean, that's remarkable. And so as it progresses, uh, and I had a question here, what if his life and focus became a pattern for our church? Could you imagine if we actually thought this way and functioned this way? If all of us were like, well, there's no reason I'm going to be outdone by John praying Hyde. His God is my God. I mean, the stats I was showing you before are based on one soul a month, right? And then being discipled to do the same. Now, you have no control over discipling someone to do the same, right? And you really can't even bring in one a month. But what we're seeing here is such a deep level of consecration and givenness in faith that it's going to radically alter India. So he is going to go after one soul a day and then two souls a day. Four souls a day? Okay, and it, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever heard me share the story of him actually being, he's, he's going on some cross-country trip walking and he has a guide with him and he gets invited into a house to stay. It's a very hospitable culture that way where sort of the, the travelers are brought in and he knows he's going to get four. And there's three people in the house. It's late at night. And sure enough, he leads them to the Lord. <laughs> and he's like, there, there's one more. And they're like, no, this is all there is. And he goes, well, there must be one more. Uh, I mean, he knows. He knows how this works, right? And they're like, uh, no, there is not one more. There's three of us. And so he keeps asking. And the guide knows the etiquette of the Indian culture. He's like, could you let this go? That's actually, this is very offensive. He can't let it go. And sure enough, there's someone out in an outbuilding out there. And he's like, okay, bring him in. What are you doing? Uh, you know, we all knew he was there. Let's, let's just, now let's get this over with. Brings him in, uh, leads him to Christ for. And I mean, could you imagine just approaching life that way? Talk about an adventure. The ache of the barren. So when you are not producing fruits like we are describing, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to create that racial tension in your soul. Give me children or I die. That's what it's supposed to be creating. You see, you are built to bring forth fruit. 
And it's not just the fruit of the spirit. It's also the fruit of converted souls. It's, it's, it's souls in the kingdom for eternity. This is what you are designed for. This is what you've been given grace for, but we have not had a pattern in front of us, which has helped explain this to us. Most of us were not reached in our Christianity through a vigorous street preacher. We were reached through family or through more easy, simple ways where we were convicted and reading a book or whatever. As a result, radical givenness to come up to someone face to face and say, you need Jesus, isn't the way we are reached. And you tend to reproduce in kind. So if you think that books are the best way to reach people, you'll probably work more on books. If you think that teaching, like in a Sunday school class, is the way that you finally awaken, you aim, your, your entire angle is towards what worked on you. The problem is most of the world is not going to come into your church. They're not going to sit in your living room. So how do you engage them when you are not familiar with that sort of engagement yourself? It's not familiar to us to do this. And it's, I don't even want to have any of us just feel shamed because of this. We have just inherited a very weak pattern of reproduction in Christianity. And as a result, we are not fit or ready or prepared to respond to this message in an aggressive way. All we can do is desire, but that's where it starts. You know, if you didn't have a father and suddenly you have a child and if you're a man, okay, and you want to be a good father, what do you do? You can have a desire. You don't have a pattern, but you have a desire. And that's where God can kindle on that. If you guys are game, if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and to move forward, I guarantee you God is. God is desirous for his people to come to him and say, God, here's your raw materials. Now equip me train me. I need that unction. Whatever they were talking about today, I know I need it. Go after it. Lord, give me thy heart of love for sinners. Thy broken heart. I don't know why it says they. Thy broken heart for their sins. Thy tears which, with which to admonish night and day. But, O oh Lord, I feel so cold. My heart is so hard and dead. I am so lukewarm. The rebuke of the friend. Oh, I know what that was. Uh, okay, so I'm reading it going, that's a quote from somewhere. I don't know why I didn't have it here. This is actually from John Prain Hyde's book, his biography, where it's this one man in an Indian, in a church service in India. Uh, in a, it's like a conference where this one person is saying, I'm lukewarm and oh God, what, something's wrong with me. And it's the ache of the barren that we all can recognize. And then this is the rebuke of the friend nearby who spoke to that person who was praying that prayer. Why are you looking down at your poor self, brother? Of course your heart is cold and dead. But you have asked for the broken heart of Jesus, his love, his burden for sin, his tears. Is he a liar? Has he not given, you, given what you asked for? Then why look away from his heart to your own? Do you have it? Don't look at your poor heart. Look at his. Has he not given it to you? He's given you everything you need. Look there. Hold on to him. As Jacob did, the man of God wrestling through the night. Do not let go until you get precisely what this is about. Father, we need something that is foreign to us. Something from the heavenly regions that must move in and take hold of our lives. We need unction. 
We ask, Lord, in your name, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you delight to give it, we ask for unction. We ask for the power, the life, the indwelling Holy Spirit to overtake us. That these bodies would not function as ours anymore, but yours. And that they would be carrying vehicles of God. And that God would be witnessed, that God would work in and through us, that God would be heard in our words, God would be seen in our actions, God would be felt in our touch. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.